You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch Larson. And Kevin, do you hear that fly buzzing around the studio? Don't say that to me. Not after this week's movies. (laughs) I'm going to crawl under the table and curl into a fetal position. I might join you under there, honestly. Oh, man. We've got quite an episode coming up for you this week, listeners. First up is David Cronenberg's latest film, Crimes of the Future, a film about a very weird dystopia. (laughs) (laughs) And then for the watch list segment, the thing that has Kevin and me both on edge, we are watching The Fly, also by David Cronenberg. Maybe a little bit dystopic, definitely gross. Don't be afraid, Sarah. Oh, I will be afraid, Kevin. Very afraid. All that's coming up on episode 338 of Seeing and Believing. I can feel you pulling things around in there. It's a brand new organ. Never before seen. We've all felt that the body was empty. Empty of meaning. And we've wanted to confirm that. So that we could fill it with meaning. The world is a much more dangerous place now that pain has all but disappeared. We're here on episode 338 of Seeing and Believing, which will possibly be the the most moist mm. episode of the podcast that we've ever had. So we we keep hitting new highs with every new new show we record. Definitely. I would have used the word goopy, but that's because I just don't like the word moist. We'll we'll have to have a sidebar about why people hate the word moist so much. I I get it intellectually, but I mm-hmm. I don't understand the the um the gut level revulsion. Yeah, that a lot of people have to that word. So we'll we'll talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But gut level revulsion is sort of a lot of what's going to be going on in this show today. We've got a Cronenberg double header for you listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, on the watch list segment, I'm going to be sharing with Sarah. One of my very favorite horror films of all time, The Fly from 1986. Mm-hmm. But uh, for now, uh, let's turn our attention to Cronenberg's latest offering, which promises lots of goopy fun. <laughs> this new film is titled Crimes of the Future, and it's set in a dystopian future in which humans have evolved to barely feel physical pain anymore, with a small subset of people exhibiting what the government calls evolutionary derangement a condition that causes their internal physiology to mutate in strange ways producing previously unheard of abilities and organs one of these people is Viggo Mortensen's Saul Tenser who along with his partner Caprice played by Leia Seydoux makes use of his newly grown internal organs by surgically removing them as part of a performance art act for live spectators The government of the future, however, is worried about the possible subversiveness of such rapidly evolving human beings, and its attempts to crack down on these people form the engine that drives this weird dystopian tale forward. So I just spent a fair amount of time there summarizing the plot, but I didn't even get to some of the more outré elements of this film. Mm -hmm. Maybe we'll have a chance to touch on some of those during our discussion, so let's dive right in, Sarah. Were you able to find meaning in the midst of all this weirdness, or was this quintessentially Cronenberg story a bunch of surgery and mutation signifying nothing? (laughs) Yeah, I was. And I think the crucial part of it is that I don't think I found meaning in any one single like goopy part. I think it was just sort of resting at the center of all of those goopy parts, like in the place where none of them all quite touch. Crimes of the Future felt very much like a film noir to me. So you've recapped a little bit of the plot and there are a lot of twists and turns, most of which like I didn't even really keep track of. Because I didn't feel like I needed to. Like with a good film noir, it's just enough to kind of sit along and enjoy the ride and kind of feel darkness coming in at your main characters from every single side and to not necessarily have to know where it's coming from. And in this case, I think that um, Cronenberg is laying the footprints for like what you need to follow in order to be able to follow this story. But I don't think he cares too much about the rest of that outside world. I think he cares a little bit more about like the interiority of 
these characters and how they are approaching the problem of what it means to be human and whether or not they're even really human anymore in some interesting and fascinating ways. And the fact that he doesn't try to tell us how to feel about it, he just brings us along for the ride with those characters, was something that I personally enjoyed quite a bit. So I'm, I'm curious to know if you were also along for the ride or if you got kind of left in the cold. I really like that read of it being like a film noir and about how that kind of uh, exempts it from needing to be all about the plot. Because that reminds me of, you know, the the famous story about the big sleep, about how <laughs> even the the screenwriter for the film uh, wasn't able to follow <laughs> it. Like, you, like the, the plot of that film is so complex that trying to keep up with it is almost an exercise in futility, at least the first time. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of it is just about kind of enjoying the, the atmosphere and the, the ways that the character's behavior and the way they move through the world, what, what that kind of says about people and about just creates a certain vision of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's, that's a compelling way to read this film too, because I too was really on board with this dystopian society that Cronenberg has created. Um, I, I mean, to be fair, I'm just about the easiest person in the world to get on board for a dystopian movie. I, I love, I love me a good dystopia. Sweet. Um, and I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff that Cronenberg is saying about all sorts of things about the tendency of, of humanity to become slowly more inward focused and kind of what that can do to a society. Hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting to get a, a pretty acerbic take on the art world through through this film. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I enjoyed that quite a bit. I'm maybe a little bit less forgiving than you about the, the plot. I thought it was, there was just enough of it there to be distracting mm. without there being enough uh, work put into it to make it fully compelling. Mm. Um, but on the whole, I think this film is compelling in enough other ways that I overall thought it was a worthwhile watch. Specifically as like a critique of the art world is what you're saying. <laughs> I So the, the interesting thing about this movie is that, you know, I feel like on the podcast, we talk a lot about how, you know, we, we are sometimes down on movies like the, the, the Marvel films because we just want them to do something new for the, for mm-hmm. the love of, of all that's holy, just do something new with the formula. And that kind of, uh, prizing of novelty above all else is sort of what's being satirized in this film Mm. that you know people are so starved to feel anything for art to make them feel even the slightest bit of sensation or emotion that they've resorted to essentially uh, performing live surgery on each other in the streets Mm -hmm. or going to a performance art piece with somebody who has ears growing all over their body and that's what passes for art in this society because they just want the next new thing. Hmm. And I think that, yeah, that's a, a nice, maybe a nice corrective to the, the critic who's just constantly wanting something new, no matter the cost. <laughs> Critique taken, uh, because I'm definitely that critic. Um, it's funny, because I think I read the art satire in almost a different way, not so much as a, we want to see something new, and more as a, is anything that I did in the past really worth it? Because it kind of it kind of mm. felt like Cronenberg was also examining his own work and his own like artistic body as a maker of very challenging, goopy films <laughs> in ways that are kind of grotesque and almost trying to examine whether or not what he used to do in the past it cuts it anymore as like art. <laughs> Pun not intended, uh, but I will I will continue on with we'll that pun. It. Thank you. Um, and also trying to, I don't know, forge new ground for himself in a way that isn't just trying to one-up like all of the other artists. So maybe there is a little bit of that novelty in there. Um, but having never seen a Cronenberg movie before this one, it still very much felt like someone who was looking back at his previous work and kind of taking stock of it and seeing what falls to the ground and then what continues to stand up on its own. I, you know, it's, I, 
I like that read as well. And again, that didn't occur to me other than kind of observing this is, you know, being a Cronenberg, it's very much focused on the flesh and how malleable uh, it is and just how the flesh is kind of this interesting synecdoche for all sorts of human things. (laughs) Like uh, how how the flesh can encapsulate um, human desires, how the flesh can uh, represent um human psychology um all human appetites all these things are kind of contained in that one single word for cronenberg and so when he explores various ways that the flesh can be harmed shaped uh or otherwise changed um that's really fertile ground for him to explore how uh, these different aspects of human nature can also be shaped or distorted or changed. And I found that to be really compelling. And it it's in this film specifically, it felt very much like in this world, there was, it was, it felt like Cronenberg was saying something about in a world where basically the, it feels like the, the environment is decaying and crumbling. I mean, even, mm-hmm. even the government buildings in this society are like bombed out warehouses. You know, mm-hmm. even the, the, those who are more well to do or at kind of on the top of the heap, they're still kind of living in squalor. Mm-hmm. And because there's so little for them to look at outwardly, everything's so industrial and, uh, decayed, the humanity of crimes of the future kind of turns inward, and they they continue to dig deeper and deeper into themselves to kind of excavate something that will make them feel again. Mm-hmm. And I, it's it's interesting how in Cronenberg finds that to be both kind of in its own weird way, kind of noble in in a in a sad sort of debased sense. But also the ways that that can also kind of lead to a pornographic view of art where mm. it's all just looking for – it's all just inward focus. It's all kind of when, – when people are watching these performance artists cut each other up, what they're imagining is like, oh, I wish they were cutting me up. And it's that's, ex- that's a pornographic frame of mind. Mm-hmm. And I, I found it interesting for Cronenberg to draw that out without necessarily depicting – that in a pornographic way it felt mm-hmm. very aesthetically disciplined to me in that way yeah it did and it's funny because this movie almost felt gentler than i was expecting it to mm. maybe that's because of a little bit desensitized to violence on screen potentially but it didn't feel like the violence was exploitative in any way so maybe it's that framing of it as being like these characters are kind of consuming the art that they're watching in a pornographic way, but I don't feel like David Cronenberg was making that art Mm -hmm. in that sort of way. I think he's showing it and he's commenting on it, but it doesn't remotely feel exploitative at all. It it feels very alien to me because again, it's people doing surgery on each other and like tattooing each other's internal organs. But at the same time, it also still felt like these artists are – literally pulling out a piece of themselves and presenting it to the audience and saying, this is my self-expression and here is a piece of me and now you can do with it what you will. That really does kind of feel like a good summation of what it is to be an artist to me. It gives a whole new meaning to the to the phrase wearing its heart on its sleeve. Yeah, <laughs> just a little bit. <laughs> it, 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 and it's, I, I just found it fascinating how this film was able to depict that in a way that was very clear about how this this is a dystopia this isn't aspirational in any way but also how these are still people right Mm -hmm. that it's a it's a it's a humane depiction of a very inhumane society Mm -hmm. and i i found that to be very interesting and and saddening and also i i don't know i i I find myself becoming more and more interested in dystopias where the artist is kind of interested in exploring how regular people sort of might just sort of go on living even when things are really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's kind of a tendency to go the Mad Max route where everybody, you know, society crumbles and everybody immediately like turns into a cannibal who, you know, <laughs> will 
murder literally anybody they see when you think about it. And it's, it's much more likely that, you know, things get worse and worse and worse and people become more debased and savage, but they're still human beings and they still have the same, uh, impulses that you and I have, like the same desire to engage artistically or, and creatively with the world in some way. It's just that in this dystopia, because there's just so little beautiful in the outer world. I mean, I don't think there, there's probably no such thing as a landscape painter in Crimes of the Future. Um, but they still, there's they're still the impulse to to create and kind of follow that aspect of of their human nature. I think, I mean, arguably being creative is innately human Mm -hmm. and i I think it's interesting to view that in a context where that that's very different from what we're used to seeing when in a movie about artists yeah i kind of want to i'm curious to know how you felt about the humans that populate this particular story because it feels like it's very sparsely populated to begin with Mm -hmm. like a lot of these cities are very empty other than the occasional people like in alleyways doing their furtive business and and cutting each other up um but there are a couple of characters that sort of populate the story so you have Saul Tenser played by Viggo Mortensen you have Tim Lynn played by Kristen Stewart um and then you have Caprice played by Leah Sadio did any of those characters work for you as characters or did they feel a little bit more like ciphers within the story um I mean I guess it kind of depends on what you would say what would how you would define um character i mean Mm -hmm. i don't think that there's a whole lot of psychological richness to to them in in terms of like i i I don't think that i really understand what it would be like to sit down next to uh kristen stewart's timlin and just sort of like (laughs) have a coffee with her you know i i don't i don't she doesn't feel like a knowable person in that sense Hmm. i do think that Cronenberg is very good at drawing out sort of a common denominator of humanity in all of them. So Mm -hmm. that even if they don't feel like a conventionally realistic um, character in like a a literary sense or, or a, you know, conventional dramatic sense, they're they are interesting to me as people. They aren't just, they aren't just action figures that, Cronenberg is putting through their paces in service of kind of his his wild ideas. Hmm. They're people. They're not really people that I that I fully understand. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think that I want to understand them, and there are understandable aspects of them. Hmm. If that makes sense, what do you think? I think so. Um, I think all people on some level are going to be slightly like impossible to understand just by virtue of being other people, and I think that he's kind of drawing out that piece of it but at the same time i don't know i kind of related a little bit to tim lynn in a way just like that that Mm. eagerness and that desire to be included in something that's bigger than herself and the inability to see past herself and get out of her own way in order to be able to be a character in that Mm. or a a person in that society so i don't know i i found her kind of relatable honestly which is a bit of a weird take probably but i i mean i don't know about weird take i that was not my experience with her character. I, okay. I, uh, she, that per, that performance is a difficult one to get your arms around. Okay. Uh, Timlin is, I, I think you compared her on, in your letterbox review to uh, a Peter Laurie performance. Oh, yeah. Where it's just very, uh, keyed up and very mannered in, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and to me, almost the, the, I, I was a little bit distracted by the, the sheer, I thought it was maybe mannered in an unhelpful way. She's very twitchy. Yeah. Um, I, and I can see how I, you would, I, I can see how somebody would find things to identify with and, and kind of build a portrait of the character in, in your imagination as you're watching the film. Mm-hmm. Watching Kristen Stewart, it was hard for me to engage with her as anybody other than Kristen Stewart just really hmm. being a bundle of actorly ticks. Huh. Okay, yeah, I completely disagree with that because I really appreciated that performance. And I think that it was used kind of judiciously if she had been in the movie for any longer of, of the screen time. I probably It probably wouldn't have worked for me. But I think she just kind of goes in and like 
sort of streaks across the screen and like injects a little bit of that nervous energy and that like desire to be included that I feel like sort of fuels the rest of the movie in a way Hmm. Um, because she wants so desperately to be a part of this world. And I think every single other character, like, like you'd mentioned earlier, they're so internally focused to the point of like almost navel gazing. I think that they're not able to see the other people around them in quite the same way. Like they see the artists that they're watching almost as like art objects or performances and not really as people themselves. And then the artists are constantly like looking within to see like, well, what new organ am I growing? And <laughs> how is this going to become a part of my next performance? And a lot of that interiority can feel incredibly static. So I think that what she's doing there is a good way to balance out that energy of the movie and continue to give it a little bit of propulsion. And there's some plot propulsion that's going on too. Like the government is investigating all of these people who can suddenly grow new organs. But at the same time, that's just kind of background noise almost and doesn't really have anything to do with the actual interior state of these characters in quite the same way, I think. Okay. I mean... I can I can get behind that reading. I would have to see the film again to see if like watching Stewart with that take in mind makes me like her performance any any better. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think Stewart can be a very good actress. Uh, oh yeah, but I, I don't know. I, I've never seen her really go for broke in this particular way before, um, and it's it's kind of interesting in the same way that. Watching Nicolas Cage go for broke can be interesting. Oh, wow. um, but I, I'm, I'm still kind of divided in my mind about whether it's it's a good Nicolas Cage performance or a bad Nicolas Cage performance, so to speak. Fair enough. Were there any performances that did work for you? I think Viggo Mortensen is fantastic in this film. Yes. Um, he's... So, I mean, he's doing a lot of physical work himself just because Saul Tenser is... You know, he's growing organs all the time, and so he's constantly in pain. Mm-hmm. And Mortensen really makes you feel how at every, at every second of his uh, waking life, Saul is suffering twinges of pain as his insides rearrange themselves. Mm-hmm. And yet he's still kind of trying to go through his day and live live the life of an artist. Um and that by itself, I think, is pretty impressive vocal and physical work. Mm-hmm. But I think Mortensen also is really funny in this film. There's a so there's a, an exchange he's having uh, with another character who is um, kind of a, a cop, basically the, the equivalent of a cop in this futuristic society. And Mortensen is sort of telling him about this clandestine uh, uh, art show that he intended, which again is. Uh, a dancer who's dancing around with ears kind of grafted all over his body. Mm-hmm. And the scene itself is, as you might imagine, a little bit disturbing for us in the audience because that sight is grotesque mm-hmm. to, to us. But <laughs> Mortensen is relating the the story of this performance to this cop. And then he's pauses and he just says with just the barest hint of of snobbery, it's escapist propaganda <laughs> yes. and i about fell out of my chair laughing because it he just the delivery of that line is just so perfect mm-hmm. and i think mortensen is just so good in that way throughout the film where it would be easy for him to sort of overplay his hand maybe in the same way that i kind of think stewart maybe overplays her hand a little bit but mm-hmm. mortensen i think threads the needle where he is funny and he can do a lot of showy work uh when it's appropriate but he also has enough restraint that, I don't know, I, I found him to be just captivating while he was on screen. Yeah, I love that he's he's kind of, he's never really standing straight upright at all either. Like, mm-hmm. that's, there's a lot of very physical elements to this performance. He's either crouched or he's lying down or he's sort of hunched over because, again, he's in pain all the time. And he's not drawing any attention to that. I think that's just how he moves in the world or at least how this character does. And he kind of talks with like this very soft whisper with like a lot of like gentle coughs a little bit that I didn't even notice until halfway through the movie. Um, It's just it's it's a wonderfully grounded performance. And I think for me, it balances out Kristen Stewart that I'm on board with hers, like Hmm. with with her more outre performance. 
because these two characters just approach the world in very, very different ways. And his way of being in the world, I think, is one that she wants to be in and she just doesn't know how to slow down or or stop and contemplate enough in order to get to that point, I think. So we've we've talked a, a bit about sort of the the atmosphere and the the vibes, if you will, of of this of this <laughs> movie. So maybe now's the time where we need to tackle that plot a little bit because it is there is a there is a plot to this film. It's not just yes. uh, a sequence of scenes where Cronenberg is sort of building out this incredibly alien future for us. There is a, a story, and it has to do with. Um, there being this sect of uh, people who have surgically modified themselves to have different appetites, shall we say, without spoiling too much. Mm -hmm. And uh, the government obviously is very interested in finding these people and shutting them down because for them to be uh, forcefully advancing the human race, evolutionarily speaking, Mm -hmm. to them is subversive. So that's kind of the the government's attempts to find and shut down the sect and the way that that project intersects with Saul and Caprice's art is sort of like, that's that's what is kind of keeping the ball rolling forward for this film and giving it a little bit of forward momentum. Um, but I'm interested to know kind of what your take on that is and where it ends up because it does end up in a place that... I think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if the whole plot didn't entirely work for me uh, as much as the rest of the film does, I'm, I'm curious to know what you made of it. Well, again, like I did not keep very close track of the plot <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't feel like I needed it necessarily. It felt like a lot of the conversations that did keep the plot moving forward were about um, trying to negotiate what does it mean to be human? But without actually like coming out and saying it, which I appreciate very much. A lot of art is about what it means to be human and like the business of being alive, I think. And it's a lot more interesting to go about it in kind of a more oblique way instead of just coming out and saying, this is my thesis. And I think in this case, for this particular movie, the question is um, not what does it mean to be human, but does it even matter if we can even define what it means to be human? And... I think the movie's answer is probably not. We're all still people, even if we're not necessarily human, if that makes sense. And that's really where I got completely on board with this movie was this this desire to go exploring and to like kind of dive down those avenues of thought, but not to try to dictate who other people are and who they're going to be and just say like, we're all human and we have to learn how to live with each other in a way. So it's a really provocative path for the, the film to choose. And uh, it's particularly interesting because I'm still not sure what Cronenberg is saying about, like, obviously that's kind of the way these characters live in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they regardless of whether or not these uh, novel evolutionary steps are uh, mutating them into something that is no longer what we would think of as human beings made in the image of God, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, to the characters in this film, like that they're still people and this is still the world that they live in. This is the the, the water they swim in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that final shot where uh, Mortensen's character makes a certain evolutionary leap. Um, Cronenberg leaves his camera on the expression on Mortensen's face, and he's just got this this utterly beatific, rapturous expression mm-hmm. before we, we go to credits. And every, given everything that's led up to that moment, I'm still going back and forth in my mind about whether Cronenberg intends that to be kind of a hopeful image hmm. or a much more ambivalent image where Mortensen is rapturous, but maybe the audience shouldn't be. Hmm. I'm not sure which way I go on that. I'm curious to hear what your take is on those final moments. though. I, I read it as completely hopeful, honestly. And I think it's telling that um, the movie opens with a crime that is committed against someone 
that a character thinks has made that leap that Mortensen has is making. And I think that that particular crime at the very opening is the most horrifying out of everything else that we see in the entire movie. We see people doing surgery on each other. We see a lot of blood and guts and gore. And none of it is, is as awful as the thing that kicks off the plot. And it's that question of whether or not people who make this evolutionary leap are human. And I think that the movie is very clearly on the side of these people are still human and these people are still human. And once you're able to embrace that, then you can move forward as well. I mean, that's that's part of it. I, the interesting thing about this world that Cronenberg has, has made for us is that flesh is cheap. Hmm. So... Um, that, that crime that you're referencing in the beginning, uh, involves a, a, a small child. Yes. And as the film goes on, we meet the father of this child who essentially consents, uh, for, uh, Saul and Caprice to make use of that, uh, of that crime as part of their act. Mm -hmm. And for, for the father of this child, it's not about this, child was his and he loves him it's more so that he's devoted to a cause mm -hmm. and this is a way for him to get his message out there so to speak and that also is disturbing in a different way mm -hmm. because of the way that scott speedman playing uh this this father uh dotrice uh is his name um the way that dotrice kind of is very matter of fact about the about his his child having uh, been lost and it's another pawn for him to use in his political goals. Mm -hmm. That is part of why I'm kind of wondering if the place where the film ends up is wholly hopeful about this or if that it's just another step along the path towards the cheapening of, of the flesh. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I think that it's on the hopeful side, and I think that the question of evolution and then the political goals of Scott Speedsman's character, I think that they sort of intersect a little bit, but I don't think that they necessarily like are hand in hand for the entire movie. And I think that the I think that Cronenberg is smart about separating those two. Um, so yeah, I, I I think it still works for me, I, and I read it as as a hopeful ending. A dark ending, but a hopeful one. Uh, well, I, I mean, it wouldn't be a Cronenberg film if it, if it didn't unsettle you in its final moments, at least a little bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future. It's uh, in limited release right now. It's one of these smaller films. So if you've had a chance to see it at a local art house theater or if you have a chance to catch it on streaming when it hits streaming later on, presumably, mm -hmm. uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this one. It's a thorny film for sure mm -hmm. um definitely not for the faint of heart but has a lot of interesting things to say and i don't know i thought this was a really interesting conversation digging into it agreed yeah uh so don't go anywhere we're going to dig into another very cronenberg story with our review of 1986's the fly coming up in a sec Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. And I realized, Sarah, that I was so caught up in the conversation you and I were having about crimes of the future in the last segment that I didn't actually share the uh, information to get in touch with us yes. if people wanted to. Here's the place to do it. <laughs> so uh, the the listeners that we're about to share their feedback with in this segment uh, contacted us uh, over Twitter. You can do that on Pod. Mm -hmm. If you feel a little, the need to be a little bit more, uh, go into more detail about your thoughts, you can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Both of those are great ways to get in touch with us. But on Twitter, Sarah, you uh, posed a pretty good question to get the conversation conversation going this week. Yeah, since we were doing a David Cronenberg double feature, I wanted to know just what's your favorite director. Um, so I asked that on Twitter. And uh, we heard back from a few people. So Dave Lester just replied simply the Coen brothers. I don't think you really need to back up the Coen brothers no, if they're your favorite. They're great. If they're your favorite directors. Um, and then Kyle Matthews also got back to us and said, probably Guillermo del Toro, although I haven't seen the majority of his catalog need to fix that. I mean, I feel like you can have a favorite director and not have seen everything that they've done. That's Absolutely. part of the reason why we do the watch list is so that we can catch up with stuff that we haven't seen before. 100%. I'd be interested uh, to hear from Kyle uh, which del Toro films he hasn't seen yet so that mm -hmm. I can heartily recommend some of them to, to him because I think 
uh, as of now, the only Del Toro film I haven't seen is Mimic. So, oh, I haven't seen Blade 2 either, I guess. So, oh. I've, see, I've got some gaps as well. But. Blade 2 rules. As the resident vampire expert at seeing and believing, I can tell you, like, for a fact, Blade 2 is fantastic. I, I would expect nothing less, Sarah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, between the two of us, we can probably recommend some good follow-ups for Kyle to get more Del Toro into his background. We also heard from Ron Stewart, who wrote in saying, who can compare right now to Spielberg? Well, maybe Scorsese, which... Yeah. Two very defensible picks. I I can't really argue about against either of those. Yeah, kind of hard to argue with both of those, especially because they've been so consistently great for so long. Like it's it's really difficult to compare anybody else to them because they just have the backlog and the artistic background and the proof that they have the chops to carry on a career for decades and decades. I, I saw somebody on Twitter recently uh, do a, a Twitter poll like, which of these years where Spielberg released two films <laughs> is the best Spielberg doubleheader? And looking at the, the list of poll options, you know, have like Munich and War of the Worlds. You have uh, War Horse and Tintin. I can't remember what the other two ones were, mm-hmm. but any director would kill to have just those eight movies somewhere in their filmography mm-hmm. that Spielberg released some of these like in the same year back to back is just incredible. Yeah, it's mind boggling. Uh, so, I mean, obviously, we've heard from our listeners about their favorite directors. Um, listeners who have listened to the show for a long time know that I'm a big Kurosawa guy. Yes. But uh, I don't think we've actually talked uh, about you, who you would say your favorite director is on balance. No. So now's the time to fix that. Yeah, it is. And it's funny because I, I was um, thinking through just like lists of directors and thinking about how like so many lists of the great directors are all lists of, of men. Um, and of course, my favorite director also happens to be a man. So there you go. Um I haven't seen all of his films either, but I love what I've seen of Andrei Tarkovsky's. Um, just consistently, like, the level of control and expression, I think, in the movies of his that I've seen. I also find a lot of them very inscrutable, so I have to watch them multiple times in order to get in them, into them. And every single time I watch them, even if I don't understand the full brunt of what's going on, I feel like I can get little bits and pieces of, of light just kind of glinting from those depths. So um, just based on uh, Tarkovsky's The Mirror, especially, and then also uh, Stalker, which happens to be my all-time favorite movie, like Tarkovsky takes it away from me. That's a really good defensive i mean not that he needs defending but he does I, not no <laughs> I, I like uh i like what you say about tarkovsky that's a that's a really uh, great way of 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 talking about him mm-hmm. i appreciate that yeah uh well listeners if you uh want to continue sharing your favorite directors with us we are all ears about that not all ears in the cronenberg sense just in the figurative <laughs> sense speak for yourself i am all ears oh dear yeah um so uh, obviously you can tweet us uh or email us at those uh, addresses that we provided earlier we'd love to hear from you we're going to go to the watch list which is the part of the show where one host recommends a movie that the other host has never seen before so uh this week kevin found out that i had never seen any cronenberg movies before at all um so we decided to rectify that and kevin showed me the fly from 1986 um which I had heard about, like, I've, I've heard about The Fly based on reputation. I think I was a little bit scared of it uh, to begin with. And we can probably get into that um, <laughs> as we get into the conversation. But for those of you who, like me, have been scared of The Fly and maybe have not necessarily seen it, also not for the faint of heart, but I will sum it up for you. Scientist Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, has been secretly working on a teleportation device, which he decides to test on himself. A housefly joins him in his telepod during the experiment, which splices Seth and the fly together into a single organism. And at first, Seth seems fine. He's displaying superhuman strength and endurance, but then his vigor spirals into mania and his good health and his body begin to break down in increasingly horrifying ways. Seth's journalist girlfriend, Veronica Queef, played by Gina Davis, can only watch in horror as man and insect slowly become one and the same. So, Kevin, at the top of the show, I think you mentioned that this is your all-time favorite horror movie. One of my all-time favorites. Okay, one of your all-time favorites. You have talked about this movie on Seeing and Believing before, and I know you've written about it as well. So I'm curious to know what 
brings you back to this movie again and again. So I'm going to channel Ash from Alien <laughs> and and start off this way. I admire its purity. You're speaking my language. <laughs> so like the fly is a wonderful example, I think, of tragedy in in the classical sense. Mm. So if you go all the way back to ancient Greek tragedy, one of the foremost concepts in that uh part of the world was a cathar- the concept of catharsis, the, the idea that drama was sup- pr- supposed to produce a cathartic effect, which uh, classically defined is the total purging of strong emotion by engaging with the work of art, usually, specifically the emotions of pity and fear. And if that doesn't describe Cronenberg's The Fly to a T, mm-hmm. then I don't know what is, because this isn't just a movie that aims to gross you out Mm -hmm. with the transformation that Brundle under undergoes. It wants you to, to it, it it has the effect on you where you deeply desire for it not to happen to this man. You want this man to not undergo the transformation, even though you bought a ticket ostensibly to see it happen. The power of Cronenberg's storytelling is such that you suddenly realize that you don't want to see it happen. You want to see him and uh, Veronica Quaif have a happily ever after. You want a cure to be found, but there is there is no cure. Mm-hmm. Um, Seth Brundle has uh, meddled <laughs> with forces beyond his control, um, and uh, he must now pay the price. Yeah. And the price is so very high. And by the end of the film, uh, the... Uh, which spoiler alert culminates with Brundle's death. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cronenberg fades to black, and it feels like the world has ended. Yeah, just the the purity of of uh, Gina Davis's terror and grief in that moment is just almost more than you can bear. And when you finish it, you kind of just have to sit back and take a you set set a spell with it. Yeah. And I think that's what makes it a a great horror film because it delivers the the horror goods in terms of scaring you, mm-hmm. but it delivers the tragedy goods in as well in that it makes you it, it reminds you of how good it is to be alive, how sad it is that some people are not, mm. and just how much you want to love other people and want the best for them i think i think it's tremendous that a single film can do that and in like an hour and a half as this one does yeah yeah that's that's a a tremendous uh introduction to the movie i think i think i loved it just about as much as you do actually like Mm -hmm. i really i really liked this movie i'm horrified by it i don't know if i'm ever going to watch it again honestly um but that level of of caring and and pathos and desperately wanting like going in knowing exactly what's going to happen and david cronenberg doesn't care about any plot twists like you know what's going to happen to these characters he telegraphs it from the very beginning and you still have to sit with them and endure that with them anyway i think is is just astounding this movie wastes absolutely no time either i love that it opens up literally seconds after Veronica and Seth have met each other. We don't even get their introduction. We just get the very beginning of that conversation. And then it ends when they finally like depart from each other ultimately for the last time. And it doesn't really waste any time with any other extraneous details. There's barely any other people in this entire movie because all that matters is the relationship between these two characters and then also Seth's downfall. And I love that even though this is a movie that does not waste any time and gets right to the point, it also knows when to give you some time with these characters before things start to get really bad. It kind of felt like a romantic comedy at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And it felt like there was there was a very strong sense of affection for these characters. Like they're not just getting set up to be killed horribly like like a typical... I don't know, a, a run-of-the-mill, like, cut-and-dried, paint-by-numbers slasher is, you care about these characters, and you want to see them succeed, and you want to see them get together and stay together. And they just don't. And the, I, I found that personally, like, deeply devastating. Yeah. The, and both of the leads are so important for our, this film working as well as it does. Mm-hmm. Um, Goldblum... 
I think is never been better maybe he's so good Mm -hmm. and you Cronenberg just does the dirtiest thing right at the at the very beginning of the film basically the first shot of the film is just a very simple um medium close-up on Jeff Goldblum and you just get a nice long look at his face Mm -hmm. and you get to you know take him in uh get you know kind of you know see the contours of Jeff Goldblum's features and it's almost like uh in the essay I wrote about this film, I I wrote that it's almost like a a photo taken for posterity Mm. because Seth Brundle's never going to have it so good again. He's (laughs) never, he's not going to look like that at the end of the film. And Cronenberg just kind of, he, he's, he's, it's almost like here's the before here's the after. Mm. And the journey we take to get there is, is devastating. And part of the reason it's, it is devastating is Jeff Goldblum, like Seth Brundle is so likable. Mm-hmm. He's such a likable person. You want the best for him. And meanwhile, uh, Gina Davis as Ronnie Quaif is maybe even has the harder role because she has to fall in love with Brundle very fast yes. in the context of this film. The pacing is so fast that if Gina Davis wasn't able to sell the fact that she genuinely cared about Seth, um, that it wasn't, that that it wasn't contrived that she her character had somehow made that leap of emotion um the movie wouldn't work either because the devastation of that final of those final moments wouldn't land because we wouldn't really be bought into the relationship gene davis sells that relationship to us and it's incredible i want to get back to gina davis in a little bit but about jeff goldblum i think we talked just last week about how Usually Jeff Goldblum doesn't work for me and he really didn't work for me in Jurassic World Dominion mm-hmm. because it felt like he was tossing off a lot of like one liners and like not really matching the energy of the rest of the movie. Although to be fair, that movie didn't know what it was doing either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know if the movie, did the movie have energy? I don't know. We'll, sorry, we'll stop sticking knives into Jurassic World. Yeah, Jurassic World, uh, that, that dinosaur is, is gone and extinct. <laughs> um, but, uh, this was probably the second time that Jeff Goldblum has really, really, really worked for me. The first time is the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I mm. think it's because both movies know how to use that kind of manic nervous energy to the movie's like greater effect. He's not too much. He just happens to be a character who in-universe is just a little much for everybody else around him. And in The Fly, it's because he's a ridiculously intelligent person. And in Invasion of the Body Snatchers, it's because he's a ridiculously paranoid person. <laughs> and both of those work really, really well. Um, yeah, I, I I felt myself kind of falling in love with Seth a little bit as well, just watching the movie. Like, he's a deeply charming character and a deeply smart character and a very clueless one at the same time. And I think that to come back to Gina Davis a little bit, um, her ability to show herself like falling for him made me fall for him all that much faster as well. So Mm. um, points for Jeff Goldblum, I suppose (laughs) I might be coming around a little bit as for Gina Davis. um, Oh my goodness. She's fantastic. And, um, I found it deeply interesting that her character is the one who has the most agency in this entire movie. Hmm. Um, She's the one who chooses to come back with him to the lab. She's the one who says no to her editor as a journalist, which I found kind of like a little bit unbelievable just, just because like if you're a freelancer, you really need that work. Um, But she is also the one who chooses to come back to him again and again, even after she knows what's happened and after she knows that there is nothing that she can do to save him. And I think that that decision is part of what makes the catharsis of this movie just so powerful is that she is saying, I fell in love with you and I'm going to keep coming back no matter how bad it gets. Like, if that's not love, I don't know what is. Um, Specifically in the context of like, things are bad for you and I'm going to support you in that. Like, I don't know. I just, I love that. And I don't think I've seen anything else quite like that before. One of the most powerful moments in this film is when uh, he he's really, uh, Brendel has started to go downhill in earnest. Oh yeah. Um, he's, uh, his, his fingernails are falling out. He has to wear gloves on his hands all the time. Um, he's, he can barely walk because his, his legs are kind of reshaping themselves 
And uh, this is the first time she's seen him since he threw her out of his apartment uh, after having spent the night with another woman mm-hmm. uh, in, in a manic state, snarling at her, saying that, you know, he doesn't need her anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's their most recent interaction. She comes into she comes back to him, sees him in this incredibly physically repulsive state, and she hugs, she embraces him. His, mm-hmm. He loses an ear in front of her. And he he can't do anything except whimper. I'm scared. Yeah. And she doesn't think about it. She just goes in for a hug, and she's she holds him, and that is just again, you know, if that's not love, what is to just to uh, both forgive him for mm-hmm. his behavior and also um, ignore uh, his his physical problems <laughs> and just and just comfort him as he needs to be comforted in that moment. It's just. It's just wonderful. It's mm-hmm. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, I don't know. It it struck me in the moment and it just kind of like, it's continued to strike me like in, in the day or so since, since I've watched this movie and like, I haven't fully gotten over that hug yet necessarily. Mm. Like, I don't know. It just felt deeply powerful and it felt deeply tender. And I think that that's the thing that I'm discovering that I like about Cronenberg having seen a grand total of two of his movies is that there is kind of a tenderness, I think to what he's doing. Like he's very keenly aware of the harm that can happen to human bodies. And he kind of seems to have a lot of fun with a lot of the, (laughs) a lot of the um, prosthetics and the physical effects in order to show that human body disintegrating. But I think that he is able to go to that level to that like artistic level, because he also deeply cares about that human body that is also falling Mm. apart at the same time. Um, It's just, it's, it's incredible. Yeah, the, the the suffering in this film it's not just it, it's not devoid of meaning mm-hmm. I guess like there's the the entire film is about Brundle's suffering in, in this in a sense and so for the film to work at all Cronenberg needed to infuse each successive outrage that <laughs> is visited upon Brundle um, to not just communicate, oh, that's so horrible, but also um, something else. Like what? What in in the scene where he uh, is uh, barely able to walk? Kind of what? What storytelling significance does can Cronenberg communicate through that? Um, in the scene where <laughs> where he is kind of keeping a museum of his of what he's lost shall we say mm-hmm. um in his bathroom uh and uh, when he offers to show that to uh Gina Davis's character you know what how what does that communicate about Brundle as a person and just sort of the differences between humans and insects. There's this great speech that Brendel gives about he wants to become the first insect politician because insects are brutal, but humans and, and left unsaid is the is the inverse of that emotion that um, insects are brutal, but humans are not. Hmm. And that is uh, a wonderful thing for Cronenberg uh, to find in this material that he didn't necessarily have to find. Yeah. Um, there's also that speech where he talks about being an insect who dreamt that he was a man. Mm. And, and loved it. And loved it. Um, but now the dream is over and the insect is awake. And I think that that embrace of that other nature, I think, was even sadder than the very ending of the movie, because I think that it is a conscious recognition that he is going to lose this thing that he has always had. And he he's had that um, kind of always like, I don't know, laid out before him and he just never really realized it. And I think he's realizing it as, as he's saying it out loud. And the moment when he chooses that and then also tells Veronica, like, get out, because if you stay here, I am going to hurt you. Like, those two things in and of themselves, I think, are the scariest parts of this entire movie. There's also a lot of disgust, though. (laughs) Was was this your first body horror film? I mean, I feel like the Alien movies count as as pretty intense body horror. Um, I'm trying to think if I've seen much else that is, like, this level of body horror, and I'm not entirely sure that I have, so... I, I'm curious to know what that was like for you. I mean, you said fingernails, and I visibly recoiled. Um, I felt I felt physically ill multiple times watching this movie, and I was also deeply fascinated by what I was seeing on the screen. Like I didn't look away 
Um, part of it is just the technical achievement of what's going on there. Like it's very difficult for me to look away because I kind of want to see how they did it. And mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it, which makes me want to rewatch it and also makes me like sick to my stomach and I never want to see it again. So there's just kind of this constant churn both in my stomach and in my head of this was an enjoyable experience and a not enjoyable experience. And I don't know that I want to subject myself to another character's like suffering, even though it's also just a movie. Like at the same time, like there's that interesting tension there where I'm conscious that this is a story that is being told. And also it feels just so deeply visceral that I I can't really quite let go of it. And that's the thing that keeps me coming back to movies, honestly. Yeah. The, the interesting thing about body horror is just, it's so, it's so unique as a subgenre in, in the horror, uh, at least to me in, in horror cinema, because there, there's something very specific that it gets at. Mm-hmm. That's the the idea that you're not scared about something outside of yourself that's going to hurt you. Because I, I guess that's kind of where the distinction with the alien movies comes in. Because there are elements of body horror there, but the alien movies are ultimately about the horror of invasion, about something invading your body mm. uh, or essentially just a monster chasing you down and killing you. Like that's kind of a lot of what drives the 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 scariness of the zen, of the xenomorph in the alien films but with the fly it's all all the horror comes from just brundle's body revolting against him mm-hmm. um about his, his own worst enemy literally being himself mm-hmm. um and i don't know i i think that there's if you're a Christian watching this film and you're familiar kind of with the whole doctrine of the flesh and how you know, you have a sin nature mm-hmm. um, that you have to contend with somehow. I don't know. As, as a Christian watching this film, I find a lot of resonance in that idea between what Brundle's going through and what, you know, we as Christians go through where we're trying to, you know, we, we have a sin nature. We've, we're not beholden to it anymore, mm-hmm. but it's not gone. There's still something that we have to contend with there. Not to get like too theological or anything though, but like the physical nature isn't necessarily always bad, right? Like Right. It's it's not yeah. a physical spiritual divide, but okay, it is good. definitely like a um the the new man versus the old man, if I can get Pauline for a second. <laughs> yeah, that's allowed. It's I, I have to keep reminding myself, um and my husband, who actually has an MDiv, will sometimes have to remind me, like, you can't just say that bodies are bad because that's Gnosticism and that's a heresy. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Absolutely. So that is something that is, that is on my mind. But yeah, like, I don't know. I just, I, I find it, it feels deeply poetic and also deeply visceral on a way that, like, kind of defies poetry, I think, hmm. th- this movie does. And part of it is just, like, the way that a lot of the dialogue is fairly eloquent. Like, at one point, Veronica talks about how she has, like, some, um, uh, what is it, uh, she has some residue on the bottom of her shoe from her previous life that she has to go and scrape mm-hmm. off when she has to go like break up once and for all with this guy who won't leave her alone. <laughs> and there's that, there's that line about like being an insect who dream, who dreamt he was a man. And I think that there is that tension of there is the body. And then there is also this, this poetry that we are all capable of, of producing. And I think that that's that grace right there, like mm-hmm. common and, and, and received. And I think that there is a very like fine line between those two things within this movie because there is also a lot of like really grotesque poetry that's going on with all of the physical body horror too. And I mean, and, and that kind of what makes it such great tragedy to me. I mean, if you think about Oedipus Rex, that was, you know, a pretty gnarly story in itself. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the the main character uh, kills a man with his bare hands. Later, he discovers it's his father. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's incest in it. And at the climax of the play, he literally stabs out his own eyes with, with a, with a pin. Mm-hmm. You know, that's so, it's not just a, it's not a clean thing mm-hmm. if you think about what that would actually entail. Um, and yet the, there's a, an ability to, like, even in that level of grotesquerie and darkness, there is, uh, grace that can be found there there you it's possible to be elevated by that and to be pointed towards the good and to de- at least point towards desiring the good after an experience where you've witnessed something go very very badly it feels like as strong an argument for for christians watching horror as ever i've heard one yeah uh, if J- if josh larson is listening to this episode hey come on the show talk to us about horror i know that you're uh, working on that very project right now yes um and i think he just 
rewatched The Fly for it this past week. So oh man, we'll, we'll have to we'll have to see if we can like get him to record a, a bit on The Fly to share on next week's episode. I would love to to know what what that experience was like for him. Definitely, Josh, if you're listening. Call us. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. Uh, well, that that is our uh, watchlist segment for this week. Uh, next week, we uh, we are going to be doing another horror film for the new release. We're going to be reviewing Scott Derrickson's The Black Phone, mm-hmm. but we're going to go a little bit lighter for for the watchlist segment. About as light as you can. Well, I mean, it's about as heavy as a Miyazaki you can get, probably. Um, we're going to be watching Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, which happens to be my favorite Hayao Miyazaki movie. It's the first one I ever saw. A little bit more of your post-apocalyptic vibes and like people learning to live in post-apocalypse. So ho- All right. hopefully you'll be on board with it. I I mean I need to see more Miyazaki and like I said I love me a good futuristic dystopia I'm, oh, yeah. or post-apocalypse either either one just. Lay it on me. I'm I'm all for it. You're getting both. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's our show for this week. Seeing and believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. My co-host is Sarah Welch Larson, and we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 